1: welcome back to pod save the world i'm tommy vitor
2: i'm ben rhodes
1: uh ben i think we have to go back to not talking about the nfl
2: yeah, we well, we were pretty clear that it was probably just gonna be one week, and and I feel yeah. fine about that. <laughs>
1: and my, my my quarterback uh, may or may not have broken his ankle or a high ankle sprain. I don't want to talk about it. Ben, you're in Singapore right now. Looks very cool in your background.
2: I know. What's I'm going right. On there? I'm right back in the. Uh, I'm right back in the the time zone. Superior, Tommy. Uh, Man, it, it's. Uh, it, I'm actually here. Like, there's a huge. I'm not here for it, but there's like a huge Formula One race coming up in Singapore. That NBS for me. You, well, I'm gonna miss it actually, because like I'm here for like some conference in the run up to it. But the uh, uh, the weird thing is like I'm not an F1 guy. Maybe I should be. Like the entire city is like being prepared for like this F1 course. <laughs> like I was yeah. going running the other uh, yesterday. Can't even remember what date it is, And like there were obstacles everywhere, and like stands are set up. And I'm like, this is probably pretty cool. Uh, well, I should is probably cool. actually watch this one day.
1: There's a Netflix show that's actually pretty fun because the drivers are very competitive and they're very bitchy and they talk shit about each other and it's kind of like behind the scenes, but the actual races themselves, yeah, I kind of struggle with it too.
2: I mean, at the end of the day, it just it's becomes a bunch of cars driving around, but I mean, that that's cool if you're into it. I mean, I, yeah, I should probably, yeah. and people are going to add us on this, but uh, I'll, I'll watch the Netflix show. I'll start there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's called Drive to Survive. Anyway, we got a lot going on today. Uh, there is a new right-wing government in Italy that we're going to talk about. That's very fun. The protest movement in Iran is growing day by day. There's a lot of news out of Russia and Ukraine. Uh, And then, you know, we'll talk a little bit about how uh, British Prime Minister Liz Truss is making a name for herself early. Jared Kushner uh, is getting his flowers. The latest on the Mar-a-Lago document saga. So news out of Cuba, some news from NASA. And then the CIA started a podcast, Ben. Uh, And then last week, Ben, you, you talked to the man, the myth, the legend, Senator Bernie Sanders what'd you guys cover?
2: It was just an awesome conversation with Bernie. So he's been out front and warning about the dangers of Bolsonaro trying to uh, work around the results of the upcoming Brazilian election, uh, You know, uh, threatening a coup, frankly, uh, again and again. Bernie has a resolution that he's introduced that we've talked about that not only expresses concern about this, but uh, expresses the Senate's view that the US should not recognize, provide any support to um, a Brazilian government if if it so happens to be a coup. And interestingly also makes the point that that should be the policy of the United States around the world. Um, Notably, he doesn't have a single Republican uh, (laughs) signed on to this resolution, which should be pretty straightforward. Like you don't want a country of over 200 million people to uh, have a military coup. Um, So we talked about that. We talked about kind of efforts to fight authoritarianism around the world broadly. Um, Bernie talks, I think very powerfully at the end of the interview about why people should care about foreign policy um kind of really on brand for this show tommy um you know given his his obviously uh uh, his very ambitious domestic agenda he connects it very well what has to happen here to what has to happen around the world apparently we're not the only country with um oligarchs and and inequality so Mm -hmm. it it does require a global (laughs) global focus to deal with
1: Remember then when the knock on Bernie in 2016 was like he didn't know foreign policy or care about it and focus on it. Now he's actually doing like a ton of really interesting stuff, specifically this resolution.
2: He does. You know, it's interesting. Like he doesn't talk about it in the conventional way, you know, (laughs) like he doesn't go out and beat his chest at like the three or four adversaries that get your attention for beating your chest at in Washington. But he, he follows events around the world and he sees, I think, the need for solidarity around the world for people fighting for democracy and social justice. So it, it, people should check out the interview. It's great on Brazil and great on how Brazil fits into this global struggle that we are right in the middle of.
1: And, and actually, you know, Ben, this Brazil story ties into our, our first story, which is these elections uh, in Italy. But before we get there, uh, Ben, question for you. What would happen if fluoride like the COVID vaccine was just in the water? That's a question that Malcolm Gladwell asks in his latest season of his podcast, Revisionist History. Actually, mm. very excellent podcast. I think I've listened to all of them. He joins uh, Abdul El-Sayed on America Dissected, here Crooked, to talk about the science and the practice of public health, uh, the ways we get it right, the ways we get it wrong, and how to fix it. So, you should definitely check that out. New episodes of America Dissected drop every Tuesday. You know where to find your podcast, so well, I won't tell you. Okay. So, let's start in Italy, because this is a big deal. So, This was this result was expected. Uh, Voters on Sunday elected enough parliamentary candidates from a collection of far right political parties uh, so that Italy now is on the cusp of having or installing the most right wing government since Mussolini. It's not a (laughs) not a good qualifier. Yeah. yeah. Uh, The coalition will almost certainly be led by Giorgia Maloney from the Brothers of Italy party, which Ben they got four percent of the vote in twenty eighteen. They were kept out of the past two government coalitions led by uh, Prime Ministers Conti and Draghi, but on Sunday got the most votes of any party, I think a quarter of all votes. So Maloney is a 45-year-old. She would be the first woman to serve as Prime Minister of Italy. She's known, you know, she seems like a a MAGA Republican. She's known for trolling the left, being anti-immigrant, being anti-LGBT, and kind of proudly playing footsie with the legacy of Benito Mussolini in Italy's fascist history. Um, This right-wing coalition was able to take power because the previous government, uh, uh, Prime Minister Mario Draghi's coalition unraveled. The Italian left is this fractured mess, and these right-wing parties took advantage of the situation by banding together. So now the question becomes, like, how will they govern? One member of the new coalition is someone you might be familiar with, uh, the head of the Forza Italia Party, led by former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. He's quite literally like a Putin stooge, a Putin buddy. He recently defended the Russian invasion of Ukraine, saying that Putin just wanted to replace President Zelensky with quote a government made up of decent people." Uh, <laughs> so that's worrisome. Uh, Maloney hasn't gone that far. She said she supports giving weapons to Ukraine, but there's concern her position could change if there's you know pressure from the right or you know energy prices keep spiking. So Ben. Uh, the silver lining here I guess is that it's much easier to get elected prime minister in Italy than to keep the job for any amount of time. I'm curious how worried you are about this results uh, or you know the, the prospect that Italy could join you know some sort of far-right block with Hungary maybe this new right-wing Swedish government and play a kind of spoiler in the G7 or other international forums
2: I mean, it, it's always worrisome when uh, fascism uh, takes root in Italy. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's tended to be the, the first domino to fall in, in bad uh, bad situations. Um, I, look, to step back, like, w- why did this happen um, and, and, and what does it mean? Uh, you know, Italy uh, has had basically two decades of pretty punishing... Economic malaise and chaos, you know, and so mm-hmm. and they suffered eleven governments in twenty years. Yeah, and they suffered really bad in the financial crisis, and then they they didn't get as much attention as Greece. They they were bigger and not in as in dire straits, but you know they, they've been uh, kind of on the wrong end of globalization and its trends for for a bit now. I'm not saying that excuses it, but I think we have to try to understand why this is happening in Italy. And then the other thing is, as you mentioned, that the left has come and completely fallen apart and fractured there. And the right is like, you know, it's got these, these, you know, mixture of populists. But then there, I was watching the rally before the election, Tommy, and Silvio Ber- Berlusconi, you mentioned, I mean, I don't know how old that guy is. He like looks 85. like he's, yeah, he looks like he's literally embalmed. Um,
3: <laughs> and he, he
2: has all this money and media footprint and just doesn't go away. Um, yeah. And And part of what's so remarkable about this turn of events is that Mario Draghi was- by all accounts, like perhaps the best leader in Europe, <laughs> like he's this That's very true. capable guy that was addressing the economy. He was like getting them out of COVID, uh, and 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 it's just not what people wanted, um, and. And so what does it mean? I mean, I think it's a real problem, right? Because we've, we've kind of gone country by country as these right-wing forces have kind of tried to ride a wave into power and most of the time they don't make it. Um, and what you've always worried about is them breaking through in, in one of the kind of big foundational countries of Europe. And Italy is obviously one of those. So it, it is something that'll probably give momentum, motivation to other far-right parties across Europe. There is this danger of, like, as you mentioned you know, her potential kind of making common cause with this kind of international far right nexus that is mm-hmm. evolving. Orban's obviously at the center of that. You got a plenty of American, you know, grifters and creeps who'd want to go over there and latch onto this. I do think that, as you also mentioned, though, like, as as we'll get to later with Liz Truss, who's obviously not quite as problematic, um, the, the the recipe for success in government is not particularly clear. Um, no, it is uh, not. You know, there the, are the, the serious economic problems. Um, the, the, I, you know, I I worry about kind of mean spirited, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee policies, but, but even that her, her capacity to, to deliver on the kinds of things she's saying, I think are minimal. But I think it's very, very, very important in that context that the rest of Italy's political parties on the left get their shit together and unify in opposition, because what you don't want is her to be running into problems and just demagoguing the left and demagoguing immigrants for the reason that she can't get all the things done that she wants, you know, which is kind of a recipe for trying to accumulate more power. Um, so look, I you hope that she moderates a bit from where she's been in the past, that Italy's kind of chaotic politics is guardrail in and of itself. Um, but, you know, yeah, a, wor- a worrisome reminder that you know, you're not out of the woods uh, after one election in one country. This is like a going to be a decade long effort to beat back these far right forces.
1: Yeah. I mean, like speaking to your point, I mean, Italy is still sitting on a ton of debt. That's sort of a legacy of the financial crisis that might force her to moderate a little bit and not piss off the EU too much because she wouldn't want them to cut off aid. Yeah. There's also the sad reality that, you know, I- immigration uh, from Northern Africa into Italy used to be a a huge challenge. And basically the Italian government has paid off the Libyan Navy to just pick people up and throw them in these ad hoc prisons. So it's not happening as often. So I think it's less of sort of a a political focus, but for the worst reasons possible. But Ben, to that nexus you were mentioning, um, Georgia Maloney, she will likely be the prime minister. They haven't finished the process. It'll take a little while. She went to CPAC in the United States twice. Uh, I watched Steve Bannon and that, that schmuck Matt Schlapp uh, cheering her her victory and then talking about how, you know, Bolsonaro next and they're keeping an eye on that
2: one. And, you know, oh,
1: yeah, boohoo, the left calls us fascist. Well, you know, this is who they're in league
2: with. But th- this is who they are. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I've been seeing these debates uh, like they they their origins are in like the Italian fascist movement like they're, oh, yeah. you know, they're they, they their have- logo
1: is a nod to the Mussolini era logo.
2: Yeah, they, they have, like, she was in, like, the youth league. When, whenever you hear about the, the youth league, you get a little concerned. I mean, and part of this is that they're... It seems like that there, there's there been a bit of a whitewashing of aspects of Mussolini's past. Um, you know, he wasn't, I think the the line goes, you know, well, he wasn't as bad as Hitler or, you know, he made he made one mistake in, in joining up with Hitler. No, like Mussolini is a guy who came to power terrorizing his fellow citizens. Uh, he's someone who brutally invaded Ethiopia, massacred people, who collaborated uh, fully with Hitler's policies with, you know, with the Holocaust, right? Like, so I I think that part of this is just, you, you know, you start to whitewash history and then it comes back, you know, and that's what yeah. we're seeing in, in a lot of places. And I think we just have to realize that, that this isn't like a a fire drill. Like this is this yeah. is happening in a lot of places, including in America.
1: Yeah, straight up fascism. Uh, the other really you know seismic political story that's happening is we're approaching nearly two weeks of these massive protests in Iran. They started in response to the murder of a 22-year-old Kurdish woman named Masa Amini. Uh, she was arrested by the the so-called morality police for not wearing a hijab to their satisfaction. I think she actually had one on. She was taken to a re-education center. She died three days later from whatever these you know evil goons did to her. But as so often happens when people find the courage to take to the streets in big numbers like this, the protesters' demands have evolved and grown into calls for more fundamental political change and the end of the current political regime. On Sunday, one of the biggest teachers unions in Iran called for a nationwide strike. So these protests could get even bigger. The security forces have been cracking down really hard. Um, There's reports of, you know, thousands of protesters arrested, dozens killed, them going house to house, uh, rounding people up. But what's remarkable is that a lot of protesters are physically fighting back against these security forces. And a lot of analysts are saying that's really bold and new. Last week, the U.S. imposed sanctions on Iran's morality police. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Canada is going to do the same. So Ben, you know, it's it's hard not to be incredibly inspired by these protesters, especially these Iranian women who are removing their hijabs in public at a great personal risk. Just before we recorded, my friend Roger Bennett from the Men in Blazers podcast sent me a clip of the uh, Iranian national soccer team who wore... Black jackets covering their national symbols during a game today, during the, the national anthem in solidarity with the protesters. So again, like you have to imagine those huge guys. Deal. Are, it's, yeah. yeah, huge deal. Very public, massively embarrassing for Raisi and the current government. Um, in the U.S., the debate is a little more narrow. People are pushing President Biden on whether he's going to continue negotiations over getting Iran back into the Iran nuclear deal. On Sunday, Jake Sullivan, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was on CBS he got asked this question. He basically said, yes, like we're trying to keep them from getting a nuke. We can walk and chew gum at the same time and call it their human rights abuses. Um, Curious if you agree or if you think there's a way to fold what's happening on the streets, you know, in these protests into that conversation, whether you keep them separate, like how would you manage this?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, it's been really uh, remarkable and inspiring to see these protests, as you said, Tommy. I mean, like just visions of women burning their hijabs in Iran. Like I... It's it's jaw dropping the courage that takes, and to me it's really what's notable is we've seen protests in the past decade that are tied to politics, like the green movement in response to uh, the election there uh, that uh, that was basically stolen um, in in two thousand ten, and then. Um, you know, these economic protests at times. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting to me about this one, obviously there were components of those protests that were frustrated with the Islamic Republic, but this is very much about like a social issue. You know, this is about the kind of creepy, fascistic morality, police, and subjugation of women. And, and to me, that's like almost more fundamental than just being pissed yeah. that, you know, that the prices are too high or that the economies in right. <laughs> the shitter. are like- Inflation this, comes and goes, yeah. Yeah, this gets to the the core identity of the regime. And so that's why I think this is really profound. And 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 look, we should also caution here as supporters of a variety of protest movements around the world, like they usually don't end with like the protesters marching into the presidential palace and the no. president leaving. They do sometimes as we've seen. The guys with the guns and, have a lot of leverage. Yeah. And, and yeah. in Sri Lanka that, that happened. But, but I think in places like Iran, they, we had to just unfortunately remind ourselves that the guys with guns matter. But but to me, it's an important time because the Supreme Leader reportedly is on like his last legs and very ill health. So I do think there's a hope that in the kind of coming years, and, and this will take years, that the combination of these kinds of protests and this kind of mobilization with maybe some political change around a succession, you would hope that that leads them not into an even more dug in hardline position, which is usually what happens in Iran, but that that cracks start to show that maybe at least there's some changes made with respect to to women's rights and that that can be a pathway to political change. And for the US standpoint, I mean, look, I mean, it's not like the nuclear deal felt like it was, you know, uh, on the doorstep of happening. <laughs> um, so yeah. I think it's, it's quite challenging to begin with. Um, and, and this will consume, I'm sure, the attention of the Iranian government. Um, who's you know, made things worse by having this kind of Sham election last time where they only let hardliners w- run. So Raisi's president, I-, I do think Jake's right. I mean, like, what? Wh- why wouldn't you want them to not get a nuclear weapon? <laughs> you know, like that yeah, seems like, like a ongoing it, concern. Yeah, this always comes back to like the idea that the, the Iranian nuclear deal is framed by its critics as some massive reward to Iran when in right. fact it's like right. a massive win for uh, us and other people who don't want Iran to have a nuclear weapon um, for for a fairly marginal. Uh, amount of sanctions relief. Um, so yeah, I, I think they're right to to continue to to explore and pursue that. I do think that you know this this is obviously going to preoccupy the attention of, of the Iranian government, and and you hope that you know, frankly, Jake's right too. You can do both things at the same time. Like, there's no reason we can't fully support the aspiration of protesters and shine a light on what they're doing, um, while at the same time trying to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon.
1: Right, right. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, adversaries with nuclear weapons and why you might not want others to get them, uh, lots of news out of Russia and Ukraine. So we we talked last week about the the Russian partial mobilization, which I think in the U.S. we'd call a draft. It is starting to look a lot less partial than initial reports seem to suggest. The Russian military is there's lots of videos of this going into poorer uh, ethnic regions of Russia. They're trying to round up as many young men with military experience as possible Maybe give them a couple weeks of like refresher training and then just throw them at the front lines to prevent further territorial losses It's not clear how quickly Russia is going to be able to mobilize uh, a significant number of guys and and whether they'll have The infrastructure or the equipment to do more than just kind of throw bodies at, at, a, at a line, but at a border but they do have a lot of numbers That said, there are lots of reports that uh, Russian men are fleeing the country. They're getting on any available flights. They're driving over the the remaining border crossings in the countries like Georgia. And, you know, we've seen, again, videos of of protests and people fighting with these military recruiters talking back, which is very dangerous in Russia. Uh, It sounds like white collar workers and then politically connected people seem to be getting exempted from the draft. I guess <laughs> the, US and, the U.S. and Russia are more alike than we thought, Ben. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this. Um, the son of Putin's spokesman, uh, Dmitry yeah. Peskov, he was dumb enough to engage in a phone conversation with some uh, YouTube hosts, like a Russian YouTube show host who was basically prank calling him. And he said, oh, no, I'm not going to serve if I'm drafted. So great. Um, very worrisome to imagine Putin putting another 300,000 troops into this fight. But, you know, you can also see in, in sort of the the week or so this has been going on, why he tried to resist this move for as long as possible, given the response. I mean, it's pretty, there's a, there's an outcry. It's not small.
2: Yeah, this is like legit. And I mean, you have to remember that, that this is unlike anything Putin has done before. You know, I mean, I think sometimes we, we create an aura of inevitability and invincibility around dictators and autocrats. Um, But Putin is in like, Dangerously new waters for him. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he's he's objectively losing a war in Ukraine that he sold on a bunch of lies that everybody can now see are lies, even back home through their propaganda machinery, and now he's implicated people's very lives, uh, and the sustainability and survivability of whole communities uh, in Russia. I mean, clearly they didn't have like a well-oiled machine to carry out this mobilization. And when you have like a rotten, corrupt system, it's going to show when you try to do big things like this. And what it's shown thus far, as you said, is like this really gross targeting... Of ethnic minority populations in Dagestan or in the in the far east of Russia, where actually in some of these smaller rural communities, taking all the military age men could actually endanger the lives of of everybody who's there because these are you know subsistence farming communities. Uh, all this is to say, like I think you're going to see real sustained blowback to this, and and the risk of for Putin uh, kind of political instability and and sporadic violence and. And even periodic kind of loss of control over a community here or there in Russia is is becoming a very real thing for him. you know um, yeah. I think you also see notably we've talked about this, you know that the neighboring states, the Central Asian governments that are usually kind of like seen as fairly you know a uh, Putin's ass, you, you know they're distancing themselves from from Putin on on, on this. You're seeing criticism. Uh, there was a very powerful speech people should find by the former president of Mongolia. Um, expressing solidarity with all the, you know, ethnic <laughs> Mongolians and, hmm. you know, people, uh, ethnic minorities in Russia that are being rounded up. So, yeah, there may be, you know, they, they have all these additional, uh, and here the, the cliche holds, like bodies to throw at the front line. But the cost back home to Putin, you know, uh, is, is much greater. And at the end of the day, for Ukraine to actually win this war, they may have to do it, it may have to be something that happens inside of Russia that allows them to win the war as much as their own battlefield success. Like Putin basically made the the foundation of Putin's regime is going to have to start to crack, you know, um, yeah, yeah. and maybe it feels like we're watching the beginning of that. But this too, like as with Iran, this is going to play out over a, a long period of time. You know, this is, yeah, is years, not months. Yeah.
1: And look, I, I hope some of these neighboring countries around Russia will let these men and women and families who are trying to escape, escape and not close off the border. I I can't imagine why we would not try to let fighters get out of there. And also, you know, this is a very small point, but it is really, it's been hard and gross to watch like a lot of like kind of American social media reactions, like kind of mocking, making fun of, laughing at, getting, (laughs) taking joy in, seeing these Russian men getting rounded up and and pulled into the draft. Like they're human beings. They don't want to fight. They don't want to die. Like we should support that, not scold them. It's just kind of disgusting.
2: Yeah, it. it, it this really bugs me, right? Uh, because if you are like, look, I get if you are sitting here and you're pissed at oligarchs and you're pissed at kind of, you know, Russian far right types or even like the some of the Russian body politic that has supported Putin. But man, if you're like some 25 year old, like ethnic minority in in the far east of Russia, like I, I don't think you're exactly been like fundamental to Putin's like rise no. to power here. No. And you know, you, you know, you'd be like a keyboard Twitter Ukraine warrior and taking shots. at That's not your target. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like, man. it's good to I, I support people being Twitter Ukraine warriors, but like, like, you're tar- like these are people, these are human beings who like just drew the wrong straw at birth to find themselves growing up in Putin's Russia. Um, Again, I think there are lots of Russians who were complicit in Putin's rise, including, I think, some of the general public that kind of got whipped up in this nationalist frenzy. So I do think it's complicated. There are elements of Russian society that bear responsibility for where we are. But like, particularly when you get into... um, you know, to, to, to constricted
1: 18-year-olds to rem- and shit. Yeah,
2: these remote places and these 18-year-olds, like like uh, you, it's just the human tragedy of what Putin's done. Um, yes. Now, what you hope is that the rest of the Russian uh, public increasingly takes it on themselves to stand up and and oppose this. And once they shatter that fear factor inside of Russia, it's going to be very hard for Putin to put that back in the box. Um, yep. And this is what, yep. again, like to plug, but Another Russia is all about, the podcast I did, if people want to check it out, because it's about a guy Boris Nemtsov who was not afraid of Putin. And yeah. if, if there are more and more Boris Nemtsovs, that's how this war ends.
1: Yeah, yeah, agreed. Uh, the other sort of big development that's happening concurrently is the Russians are pushing forward with these referendums in Eastern Ukraine and the Donbas region. These Ukrainians in these occupied territories are literally being forced to vote at gunpoint on whether to join the Russian Federation. It's obviously a sham, but the concern becomes whether Russia you know, pushes this process forward declares, you know, these regions part of Russia and says, okay, well, now these are officially Russian Federation territories. So if you attack us here, we will respond as if you attacked Moscow, the implication being like a nuclear umbrella would be extended over these regions, etc. Obviously, that's like nonsensical, but none of this is logical, right? So the, the results could also be used as a leverage in a future peace negotiation with uh, Zelensky. The good news is that the European Union says it won't recognize these results. But this is a weird thing, though, Ben. Again, like I'm, I'm focusing on the media response, and maybe that's not the biggest point. But I found it odd and depressing yeah. how often I see Western media coverage describe what's happening and be like, Western countries say these referenda are illegitimate, but Russia says blah, blah, blah. And it's like... State the obvious here. Like this is coercion. <laughs> There's no ambiguity here about what's happening. You have soldiers going house to house saying, Hey, you want to vote to join Russia? Like, what do you think is going to happen there?
2: I, I Tommy, I, I woke up at like three thirty in the morning jet lagged and for some reason like I I saw like these headlines that were like I think Reuters had a headline like Lahans region votes to join Russia or something. Don't even call it a vote. The BBC was doing it too. i like, what are you you doing? It's fucking insane. It's outrageous and irresponsible. Like we talk about both sides media in this country. Like these are people that invaded a country, like killed and depopulated those territories. We know from some of the same reporting and some of the same outlets that there are literally mass deportations and torture of people in these areas. And they're going around at gunpoint and telling the vote, and then you, you know, the framing of it is like Russia holds election in Luhansk. You know, ninety-six percent vote in favor joining Russia. Like Ukraine and Western, like this is, get do your fucking job. Like this is not what is happening. Like North like, Korea. This is yeah. not real. They're breaking international law. Like it's just it's amazing that that, that, that we're having this discussion. Like this, this these really are weird. total sham elections that they're totally legal. This it, it's just playing into Putin's creation of an alternative narrative, and there's no reason to do that. These are fake elections, and and you're right. Like the veneer of legitimacy. You know, not only does Putin want to annex his territory, but this is the. The vehicle for them to use a tactical nuclear weapon, you know, to say that any attack on these areas that they're now going to claim are part of Russia invokes right. their nuclear response. That is a very frightening thing. And, right. and, and the more we try to delegitimize the basis of that, I think the better.
1: Or a newly friendly sort of right wing Italian government says, well, maybe you should consider negotiations where the starting point is the Russians get this territory, et cetera. You know, like that's how this goes badly.
2: No question that quietly what you're going to, you know, what you hear, I think, in, in some of these places in Europe is like, you know, well, why can't we just let them have, you know. The Donbass right. and and call it a day, you know. And, and
1: look, the answer is like I want peace negotiations as much as the next guy, but I stopped really pushing for this as something that should happen when I started reading about the mass graves and the massacres and the torture of civilians under occupation. I don't think Zelensky could allow for uh, his civilians, his citizens to be to live under that. It's just, it's not it's not feasible.
2: Yeah, imagine asking Americans to say like, well, we should just kind of let New England. Become like a an internment camp for everybody who lives there, and let it be repopulated by invading Canadians. And you, you, like it's just it's not something any nation would would choose to do. Yeah, you know. No,
1: no. Uh, last sort of roundup of news on on this topic. So. Congress might soon authorize another uh, $11.7 billion in assistance for Ukraine. That goes on top of the $53 billion that's already been approved. So just, again, a staggering amount of money. Uh, on Monday, Vladimir Putin granted former U.S. intelligence uh, contractor Edward Snowden Russian citizenship. So congrats to all involved <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, on Monday, Ukrainian intelligence warned that Russia is planning to carry out massive cyber attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure. And they also warned that they might be planning to attack critical infrastructure Of Ukraine's allies. So again, lovely. Uh, And then this was very weird. There's a horrible shooting at a Russian school uh, by a man wearing Nazi symbols killed 15 people, including 11 students. It seems like this was a disturbed individual who attended this, this same school, not like connected to the broader geopolitical stuff that's going on, but very scary and awful. And then just before we started recording, Uh, I saw the European officials are now investigating a mysterious underwater explosion, or several of them, that damaged the Nord Stream pipelines, which carry natural gas from Russia to Germany. Prime Minister Poland says this was an act of sabotage, presumably by the Russians. So, you know, the latest data point suggesting that Europe uh, is in for a very cold and challenging winter when it comes to natural gas and energy.
2: Yeah, and there was like three separate explosions in different places, which doesn't feel like a freakish accident. No, it um, doesn't have to be. Accident, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, all these things, uh, you know, Snowden aside, um, it, it just feels like we're in a we're this, this war is escalating, right? And this yeah, is what happens there. when you st- start a war with no discernible endpoint. Um, but we and, should be. And that's why
1: like Zelensky's like, hey, we got to accelerate the response yeah. to stop this, which, look, I get that.
2: Yeah, because like the longer this war goes on, the more. More escalation, there's going to be. I mean, Putin's not the kind of guy that is just going to take his, you know, cards and go home. So uh, no. I think we should be prepared for like more strange and asymmetric Russian efforts, like the the pipeline explosion, like cyber attacks. Like you know, the, one of the dogs that has embarked in this conflict is cyber attacks in the U.S. and the West. But you know, uh, I, I'd expect that Russia's been trying to do that. <laughs> Somebody must be doing a pretty good job preventing it. But but we should be in for more surprises here, unfortunately.
1: by visiting unrefugees.org/donation that's unrefugees.org/donation support for Pod of the world comes from the international rescue committee the irc works in more than 50 countries serving people whose lives have been upended by war conflict and natural disasters in places like gaza ukraine and sudan displaced families are experiencing war extreme hunger and life-threatening injuries in gaza Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org/rebuild, that's rescue.org/rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod of the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, dot com slash Crooked World. Turning to the United Kingdom for a bit. Uh, so I think a lot of people, Ben, were wondering how the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, would be able to make a name for herself and, and you know sort of get out of the shadow of her predecessor, Boris Johnson. I bet they did not think <laughs> yeah. that she would go with the... Tank the global economy approach, but that is what happened. Last week, uh, Liz Truss's Conservative Party, the Tories, proposed increasing government borrowing to pay for massive tax cuts, mostly for the rich. I think there was a, a banker's bonus that will no longer be taxed. Uh, that move sent the value of the British pound plummeting and it cratered the new American stock market uh, as well because every economist on the planet was like, hey, all the things you're doing are going to exacerbate already high inflation. I think the UK is at like 10% inflation. So this sort of Reagan era tax policy announcement also comes as the British government is going to have to put in place subsidies to cap the price of energy for British citizens because the that energy costs are skyrocketing and the Bank of England is jacking up interest rates to try and cool off inflation. So I don't know, Ben, how are you feeling about the new leadership? Things going well over there?
2: You know, I saw, Tommy, that the IMF, like, put out a statement, like, <laughs> warning <laughs> warning against what they'd done uh, in the UK, this announcement, uh, urging them to reconsider. Um, it's never good if you're, like, a, a G7 country and, like, the, the IMF <laughs> is preparing, like, a stabilization package, you know, or something. Like, uh, th- what, a, what a profound and utter failure and embarrassment uh, this whole thing was. I mean, I, I think if you step back from it, uh, like, I, I will never stop connecting all this back to brexit right when you have a political party that sold the most consequential decision that the united kingdom has made in many many decades on just a massive steaming pile of lies like the lies they, they keep trying to kind of lie and spin their way out of this and and the latest version of this is to think that this is like the United States, and not the United Kingdom, and we're just going to come in and and be Ronald Reagan and slash taxes. And, uh, and I'm look, I'm no economist, Tommy. Like when you're in a massive cost of living crisis, and you're already talking about massive expenditures um, to try to prop up your uh, your energy needs of your citizens, like and your 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 pound, your currency is already like weakening dangerously, and uh, you've left the the common market that you were a part of, like deciding to like have a massive set of tax cuts for the rich and it's, corporations it's is insane. It's not what I would recommend, you know. No, and no, it just it, it to me it, it it just speaks to the kind of bankruptcy of of the Tories that they they have no answers for Brexit and that they've told lie after lie. They said that leaving the common market. Would allow them to have like this robust bilateral free trade agreement with the United States. Well, that's that's not happening. Um, they they said they'd be able to like stand up to the EU and kind of bend them to their will. Why would a, a block of over three hundred million people that is a massively larger economy than the UK feel like the UK has any fucking leverage over them, right? No, they don't. No. Um, and, and now they say that they're going to tax cut their way uh, back into growth and and f- somehow fiscal solvency. Like, hello. British people, like, I know you're still upset about the queen. Like, you are getting screwed here by people who are selling you a a fucking giant heaping set of lies. You made a mistake in voting for Brexit. Fine. That's done. What's done is done. But like, at some point, can you please put some adults in charge of your country? I I know we've had the same problem in the US. Like, I I know we're in a big glass house here, but I'd like you to do that, please.
1: Uh, it is a good time for Americans to visit London, since the dollar will go pretty far. Uh, next topic: so banner week for our friend Jared Kushner, then, who got a big time big boy award. He got Hungary's Order of Merit medal last week, which is the fourth highest award that can be granted by the Hungarian state. The fourth, <laughs> the fourth Four, highest times. award is so funny to me. That's like it's such vintage Kushner mediocrity here. Like, what, who
2: gets the third? Like, the goulash guy? Like, what do what, what I think this? the third is that, like, medal that Sebastian Gorka used to wear? Oh, right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's all out in the open now, right? It's I like love we've it. got, like, you know, like the blood and soil autocrat and Hungary doling out the fourth. I mean, you know. Uh, I, I would like to see the, the list of the people that clocked in ahead of Jared. But like Jared, Jared is yeah. so unself-aware that I'm sure he thought that this was like one of the high honors of his life. You know,
1: he thinks it's great. Uh, just for yeah. fun. Let's hear a quick clip of the uh, admittedly crazy former Trump trade advisor, Peter Navarro, talking about Jared on a recent I think some far right wing
2: channel. I call Jared in the in the taking back Trump's America, the clown prince, which is an obvious takeoff on. uh yes. the 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 Saudi crown crown prince and by the way the crown prince of Saudi Arabia would play Kushner like 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 a puppet it was just and Jared's weakness was he always thought he was the puppet master when in fact he was the puppet
1: couldn't say it better myself, Ben. Th-
2: yeah, th- thank you, sir. Uh, <laughs> so, like, yeah, that—that's all been painfully obvious to all of yeah. us for nailed a while it. here, guys. Yeah, so nailed
1: it, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Trump world, Ben, so a little update on the classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. The—the the short answer, just for everyone listening, is that um, case closed. This has all been fake news. Here's mm. why:
0: If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. Even by thinking about it. Because you're sending it to a lago or to wherever you're sending it, and there doesn't have to be a process. There can be a process, but there doesn't have to be.
1: Mental declassification. I learned something today.
2: Telepathic declassification. I mean, who knew Tommy uh, <laughs> in all those meetings that we were in, all the all those like like ferocious investigations of compromises of classified information, you know um, the, the idea that they, that you could just think it is de- de- declassified is is, is, yeah. is is a stunning innovation. I mean, it, it bears pointing out here because sometimes like you see people, it, this is a version of like the media covering the sham referenda um, in, in, in a certain way. You, you'll see some people say, well, maybe, you know, Trump seems to have a, a sweeping view of presidential power, you know? Um, <laughs> right, one, a, a, one that
1: he made up. Yeah. Yeah.
2: As if this is like some like legal theory or something when, Again, we haven't done this in a very long time on this podcast. Like if Barack Obama had taken like a hundred boxes or, or hundred classified documents and box after box and then said he telepathically declassified it. Um, I'm just go thinking well. that the sweeping view of presidential power wouldn't apply in that yeah. instance. Um it would look, it, it, and what he's doing here is he's he's admitting the crime, right? <laughs> so like yeah. at the core of this, like he committed a crime, took this stuff to Mar a Lago. You know, it's entertaining to hear him talk about it, but it doesn't change the basic facts.
1: Right. And and like back here on planet Earth, I mean, here's a clip of French President Emmanuel Macron uh, doing an interview with Jake Tapper about whether Macron has been briefed on all this information that is reportedly sitting in a file or was sitting in a file in Mar-a-Lago about Macron and him and something that Trump apparently would would brag about to his buddies before stuffing these documents in his basement. Here's a clip.
2: I read some newspaper about that, like you about the books. Uh, If you have more information, I would be delighted to share them.
1: But you don't—you don't know what it is. Nobody's talked to you. about I, I'm
2: not part of the FBI. I'm not one of the uh, of President Trump's lawyers. I have no information about that. I, I, I will not say it's extremely pleasant to—I to, mean—to see this type of information. I—I I try to be less paranoiac each day. So I mean, I'm cool. I'm here, <laughs> and I would be delighted to have more information. But it's not in my it's not on my side
1: i'm cool that's a, pre- that's a pretty good answer not sure what else you could say there
2: pretty good answer uh pretty good answer in and good english there macron i i i think um this is such what did said to travis is such an embarrassment to our country and uh whatever you think of emmanuel macron like the the president of one of our closest allies shouldn't have to be sitting there wondering like what's in a box of material at fucking no. mar-a-lago from the former Sucks. president of the united states who may run for president again and i i will just say like I think he has every right to be briefed on what's in that information. I do too. Every right. Like, I hope that, I know that DNI is conducting a review and all this stuff like, you know, particularly on something like that where there's been so much press reporting, they should tell him what's in there. You know, like, yeah, this yeah. is like the matter of trust with allies and, uh, you know, who we asked to do really hard things, right? And yeah. yep. the idea that and Emmanuel Macron is sitting there trying, trying to to help us deal with the war in Ukraine and the European energy crisis, And he's got the leader of the Republican Party in the United States with a box of shit in his house. Like uh, that's 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 really that it's just like a profound betrayal of what the United States is supposed to do in the world.
1: Totally. Totally. Uh, Here's a a, a couple more quick things, Ben. This is a segment I'm trying out with you today called Hey, That's Cool. Uh, Let's see how it goes. Part one. Apparently, the Saudi live tours lobbying efforts in Washington went terribly. (laughs) Remember, this was being led by former Vice President Dan Quayle's son, Uh, An aging Australian golf star, Greg Norman, the Live Crew had a little meeting up on Capitol Hill with a bunch of members of Congress. A guy named Tim Burchett, uh, a Republican from Tennessee, a member of Congress from Tennessee, attended, and he was quoted in a Slate story saying he could barely understand what Greg Norman was saying because his accent was so strong (laughs) that regardless of what he was saying, that he couldn't understand it was all propaganda from quote billionaire oil guys, and finally that the food was terrible too. (laughs) So that's cool. Hey, that's cool. Yeah,
2: it gives Uh, me a little hope. Yeah, I, I mean, you could see the sham for what it was. Uh, I also saw like the thing about Norm Coleman, Saudi mega lobbyist, Ugh. is also like the fundraiser for the Republicans and has raised yeah, like almost a hundred million dollars in dark money. So yeah, the grossness of the Saudi influence campaigns continue. But uh, I'm yeah. glad Greg Norman, the shark, uh, who, who didn't who, land it, you the know, was a pe- peak as a golfer, you know, was like. 30 years ago before he started selling like hats with a shark on them. Uh, <laughs> like I'm sure I'm, I'm glad his like live pitch yeah. went down as well as like his, his, his game has been the last couple of decades.
1: Me too. Part two, in a national referendum, Cubans overwhelmingly voted in favor of allowing same sex couples to marry and adopt children. So that's very cool.
2: Yeah. there have been progress on same sex marriage in Cuba for a while now. And this is really, really cool to see. And, in, in, in you know, in, in Latin America, like you, strange countries making inroads on on marriage equality i was just in taiwan which legalized uh same-sex marriage recently cuba so uh you know uh, it's great the, the countries as different as taiwan and cuba can can legalize same-sex marriage and we can all do this come on guys
1: we can all do this and the third story i had in here is uh nasa slammed a refrigerator-sized space probe into an asteroid to see if they could knock the asteroid off its orbit. This was a test to see if a similar technique could one day be used to prevent a planet-killing asteroid from hitting Earth and killing us all. So I'm glad they nailed this thing. but they hit the uh, asteroid, but it'll be much cooler if we then learn that it actually changed the orbit and the broader strategy proves uh, to have worked. But it'll take a little time to figure that one out. But you know, fun to see you know footage of NASA just like blowing shit up.
2: I feel a little misled because I thought basically you needed like Bruce Willis or Ben Affleck to pilot a ship with like a nuclear weapon to you like probably do. nuke the asteroid. Who knew that you could just shoot a fucking refrigerator up into the sky and <laughs> save planet earth. So like learn if, I, every day. if that's the case, you know, uh, like if don't look up, uh, could have been solved, uh, with the refrigerator, um, <laughs> you know, uh, could have saved, uh, saved the ending, you know, um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. saved a lot of viewers for, yeah. for sitting through <laughs> yeah. the whole thing. Uh, finally, Ben, the CIA has started a podcast. It's called The Langley Files. The first episode features uh, the CIA director and and friend of ours, friend of the show, Bill Burns, former State Department lifer. Here's what I'd like to say to the CIA. Stay in your fucking lane.
2: Yeah, come on,
1: You don't want this podcast industry smoke. So help me God, if I hear Bill Burns reading like a Tommy John ad or some shit, I am coming down to your office and I'm going to set you straight.
2: So cut it out. Uh, don't even, yeah, I mean, like, uh, if they're coming at me with, like, the, the Langley coffee, too, and the merch, Ugh, like, uh, no. you know, don't think that you're coaching on the space, guys. Like, you've got your covert operations over there. You've got your, you know, you got your spy networks and all your shit. You, like, you've done your just, cute tweets. I don't know that you need to, you know, like, this is our space. This is our little corner. Okay. This might be um, peak podcast. The CIA starting a podcast
1: <laughs> yeah. might be, like, the, the, the day it all started to end. <laughs>
2: I know everybody. we may be sitting in a bar in like five, 10 years and be like, yeah, you know, when the when the agency launched day. that thing, man. Uh, Late September, uh, yeah. 2022. I will say I'm glad they're trying to communicate. I mean, I've always like, I think we tried to urge them to, I don't know, do a little more transparency over there is never a bad thing, but. Uh, no, know, it's not. We're, it's we're not. just going to keep an eye on this competitor though. You know? Yeah. It's a lot of inertia in that place.
1: Uh, okay. We are going to take a quick break and we come back. You will hear Ben's interview with Senator Bernie Sanders about the upcoming elections in Brazil. So stick around for that.
0: This episode is brought to you by Paycor, the HR and payroll software made for leaders. It's never been harder to recruit, hire and engage workers. That's why HR leaders and frontline managers depend on Paycor for all things people management, from onboarding and performance reviews to compensation and benefits. Learn more at paycor.com leaders. That's P-A-Y-C-O-R dot slash leaders. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only, some exclusions apply. See store for details. I live by routines,
1: especially my same day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Ship.com.
2: We are very pleased to welcome back to Pod Save the World, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont. Thanks so much for joining us, Senator. My pleasure, Ben. So it's great to have you on in the run-up to this Brazilian election, which we've been following, and I know you've you've really played a leading role in in following in the Senate, where President Bolsonaro has made all kinds of threats about not respecting uh, the potential result. Uh, I wanted to just start by asking you to describe what your concerns are from what you're seeing from Bolsonaro and introduce this uh, resolution that you pursued in the Senate to try to do something about that?
3: Well, uh, Brazil is the largest country in Latin America. What happens there is obviously important to the whole continent. Uh, Brazil turns out to be one of the largest democratic countries in the entire world. So at a time when we are deeply concerned about all of the attacks and threats against democracy, It's important that we take a hard look at what's going on in Brazil, which, as you know, not so many years ago, lived under a military dictatorship. Uh, And what's going on is they have a president who is very Trump-like. I think he's learned a lot from Donald Trump. Uh, In 2018, and I can, you know, we have a whole long list of quotes. Yeah. This is in 2018, he won the election. Before he won the election, this is what he said, quote, I will not accept an election result that is not my own victory, end of quote. Then more recently in 2021, he said, and I quote, there are those who think they can take me from the presidency with the mark of a pen. Well, I say to everyone, I have only three possible fates, arrest, death, or victory, and tell the bastards I'll never be arrested, only God, can take me from the presidency, end of quote. Uh, It doesn't sound like somebody who strongly believes in the will of the people uh, or uh, the democratic process. So that is what the concern is. The concern is in a couple of months ago, I met with a wonderful group, cross-section of people from Brazil. uh, And uh, they came to the office and they expressed deep concerns about the possibility of a military coup or just the reality that Bolsonaro might not accept the election uh, results. Yeah. And what we are trying to do right now, uh, I've introduced a sense of the Senate uh, resolution along with Senator Kane, who's the chairman of the relevant subcommittee, uh, which is pretty simple. And it says that if uh, the government of Brazil uh, stays in power because of a coup, or because of illegal manipulation of the elections or refusal to accept election results, the United States uh, will not recognize that government and cease uh, the aid, the substantial amount of aid, including military aid, that we give to Brazil right now. So,
2: in getting into, there are different angles to this. In, in getting into Bolsonaro's tactics here, You know, I think he pretty famously in his 2018 election mimicked some of the Trump campaign's strategies and messaging and social media. Uh, We've seen uh, Trump obviously have a warm relationship with him when he was in the Oval Office, but we've also seen kind of Trump people, MAGA people like Jason Miller head down to Brazil. We've seen Steve Bannon take this on. How concerned are you that there's kind of an overlap between the far right in this country and Brazil and you know Bolsonaro has talked about rigged voting machines. It, it almost feels like you know he's singing off the same playbook here. What do look, you he's laying that?
3: the groundwork. You know it's it's no great secret, Ben. I think yeah. your view is this: what he's doing is what Trump did. He's laying the groundwork to say, look, and it's what what's what Trump did. Uh, this is a fraudulent election. I won, and I will not accept the results. And by the way, I have the military behind me. Uh, this is clearly you mentioned people like Bannon and others uh this is part of a global effort to undermine democracy all over the world you know whether it's france the uk countries all over europe you're seeing the growth of extreme right-wing organizations uh and to my mind i mean this is, is a very deep issue and i i think what you're seeing and there are a 100 reasons why this is happening uh, but one of the reasons is that globalization Uh, while it may be, have been successful for many people, it has been a disaster for a lot of people, especially working people in rural areas who have been left behind. They're falling further and further behind. Government is not responding to their needs. And they're saying, what, what does democracy do for me? What are all these stupid political parties doing for me? I want somebody up there. who can get the trains running on time. Who's going to help me? Uh, And I I think you're seeing that movement all over the world. And and, um, to my mind, you know, what we need are efforts to create economies that work for all, not just the few, to restore faith, that government, in fact, can work for ordinary people.
2: Do you, uh, and I want to come back to the the resolution, uh, but, but I want to pick up on something you said, because one of the interesting things that's happened in Latin America the last few years is you see a lot of gains on the left, Um, At a time when populism has largely manifested itself on the right, we've seen Boric uh, get elected in Chile, Petro in Colombia, uh, pretty much the whole hemisphere moving in that direction. And Lula has obviously been at the vanguard of of the Latin American left. Uh, We should note he's led by huge margins or substantial margins, at least, in in, in all public opinion polling in the Brazilian election. Do do you feel like the Biden administration in the United States is, is doing enough to... To kind of embrace that trend and see it as an opportunity to address things like structural inequality in Latin America, because sometimes, you know, as someone who worked on Cuba and has the scars to prove it um, and wanted to pursue a different kind of relationship there, in part to have an opening with the Latin American left you know, the U.S. tends to look at leftists with some degree of, of concern, you know, uh, in Latin America. Do you, do you see an opportunity here with potentially Lula on top of Boric and Petro and, and, and a bunch of other leaders to, to have a new set of issues that, that I, I would the hope debate? so. And,
3: and, and by the way, in fairness to the Biden administration, before we talk about their relationships uh, with progressive governments, they have, and I think in an unusual way, uh you know sent the CIA and set the Secretary of Defense down to Brazil yeah uh over the last several months to make it clear uh that they did not want to see a rigged election or a coup uh and that's what the Biden people did uh and I appreciate that you know when you talk about uh the United States government's relationship with Latin America uh you know uh better than I do the very sorry um past uh, that has existed the overthrow of people like salvador allende yeah uh, and numerous other the invasion of grenada just the numerous the intervention in el salvador the government throw overthrow the government in guatemala i mean it's it's a past in which uh we've had a monroe doctrine which has said hey you're in our backyard and we have the right to intervene anytime we want uh clearly that is not the position of the Biden administration are they reaching out to the progressive new governments and saying look if we're going to deal with issues like immigration we understand people are leaving your countries leaving the Central America leaving Mexico uh, because of horrendous conditions there let's work together to try to improve life for people which will be good for your country and basically stop the huge Uh, exodus into the United States. Are we doing as much as we should? Probably not. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, I just see an opportunity there to to work on the agenda you talk about. But I want to come back to to your resolution in Brazil. Um, What's the status of your uh, ability to, to get that done um it doesn't seem like there's a lot of Republican enthusiasm <laughs> why do you think that is and, and and have you gotten anywhere in your kind of private conversations with your colleagues uh on the other side well it
3: is you know it really is and I and I say this honestly not to be overly partisan uh it is a sad state of affairs that this resolution I think we have five or six Democrats on it we could have more we haven't been as aggressive going after Democrats we wanted to get some Republicans on uh to be honest with you I don't know that we will have any Republicans And I think the answer is not complicated. Uh, Bolsonaro is, in fact, a strong Trump ally. And if you are a Republican in the United States Senate, uh, why do you want to antagonize Donald Trump? Yeah. Yeah. And and, um, so I think that's that's the bottom line for that. What we're trying to do now is uh, see if we get this thing, quote unquote, hotlined, which means see if we can move it through the Senate and get it onto the floor for unanimous consent. Uh, will we be successful? Stay tuned. So, and,
2: and you know, it's an interesting resolution in that, it, it, you know, it obviously expresses not just a view, but, you know, makes recommendations about how the U.S. should respond. Let's say the most likely scenario happens, right, where you have um, Bolsonaro losing the election, you know, according to vote tallies, international election monitors, um, but then refusing to step down. Um, what would you like to see the U.S. administration do in that context? And and, and what is the role of Congress uh, in that context? I think we got to be as
3: aggressive as we can be. I mean, obviously, it's not only cutting off all uh, military aid and all types of aid to uh, an illegal government, which is essentially an illegal government, but I think doing everything we can to support the justified uh, demands of the Brazilian people. Uh, they, if, if in fact, that scenario takes place, and I hope very much that it won't, that it may very well not. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, uh, Biden is the president and Trump is not the president. Uh, but I would, you know, not only for the sake of the people in Brazil, it, it, but for Latin America and for the entire world, if the world sits by and allows an illegal government to... Uh, to come to power in the largest country in Latin America, then we're turning our backs on democracy. And I think the future for democracy will be very bleak indeed.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, th- this is, you know, as you said, one of the largest democracies in the world and talk about a bellwether for this region, but you mentioned the whole world. I mean, one of the things that was interesting to me is you, you know, in this resolution, which I think serves a great purpose for, for Brazil itself, but it also points to the idea that the United States would not be providing kind of military assistance to governments that come to power through coups that overthrow democratic elections, which, you know, if we're honest, you know, we can find uh, uh, countries around the world where we haven't followed through in that principle. Um, I'll be, you know, honest, in the Obama years, for instance, um, Thailand, uh, you had um, a, a military coup and this awkward dance with how to manage that relationship. I mean, do you think that given the, the autocratic trends just being clear and more consistent on, on the basic principle that if you have a coup that overthrows a democratic result, the United States uh, is going to cut you off. um, Is that the kind of consistency that we should be aiming for across the board or do you see this more? as I think so.
3: Yeah. Look, I think so. You know, at the end of the day, uh, in a world which is becoming more and more authoritarian, more and more oligarchic from an economic perspective, uh, it is imperative that the United States stand vigorously for democracy. What will it say to the poor people of Brazil who are voting, you know, according to the polls, very significantly for Lula, that we're going to turn our backs on you. So both from a pure perspective regarding democracy and our belief that people themselves have the right to control their own destinies, not the military, and also, you know, uh, from an economic point of view, and that uh, many of these, you know, governments are supported by the rich and the powerful. Uh, I think it's very imperative that the United States stand strong uh, and make it clear that we are on the side of democracy and we are on the side of the needs of working people who are struggling very significantly. Uh, in the global economy and uh, where things have gotten even worse as a result of the pandemic.
2: And one last question I wanted to ask you here, because we've talked over the years about this question of democracy, uh, which I, I I really respect how you've uh, prioritized it globally, even as you have such a robust agenda here in the United States. You know, one of the things that is, as someone who really cares about democracy myself that is is complicated when it comes to U.S. foreign policy is that it sometimes becomes tethered to U.S. geopolitical interest, right? So we only talk about democracy and uh, right. Venezuela and Iran, you know, <laughs> we look the other way in Saudi Cuba, Arabia. but somehow Saudi yeah, yeah. Arabia is a flourishing <laughs> yeah. democratic society, right?
3: Exactly. Because women can yes. even drive a car now.
2: Almost. Yeah, yeah, almost. Uh, although you can get in prison uh, if you're a woman who criticizes things. But I, I like one of the the, the the thing that is staring us in the face, though, is that the mo- most, you know, the, the Cuba and Iran uh, have horrific excesses in their governmental systems. But the, the the mega trend that is leading to accelerating democratic backsliding, particularly, you know, in in, in democracies themselves is coming from the far right. 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 Um, Putin, Orban, Bolsonaro, I'd say Netanyahu, we could go on unfortunately. Um, what, What does the left have to do to create greater solidarity among movements for democracy across borders? Because you mentioned the Brazilian civil society you met with. I'm sure that they're not that dissimilar from the Hungarian civil society I've met with or people in India who are concerned about Modi's excesses um, or, you know, people in the Balkans who are dealing with Russian-backed far-right movements. Um, It doesn't feel like we are as organized and connected as the far-right is where you've got, you know, Steve Bannon flying around, meeting with far-right parties in Europe and Putin financing them. Um, What can be done to, to... and what have you been working on, because I know you have done some of this, to, to create greater connectivity among the progressive democratic forces that I think are on the front lines, really, of this fight against far-right. Well, I think that's a, a very
3: important question, Ben, and I think the answer is, neither I or anybody else has done anywhere near uh, enough. Uh, I was just in London uh, a few weeks ago as part of a parliamentarian uh, set of meetings, and uh Just turn this off uh and um I participated in a rally with striking with with, uh, union leaders uh in London who are uh you know have been on strike uh dealing with the incredible rates of inflation and high energy prices uh and, and and an economy which is I think people don't appreciate I didn't really bad for working people Uh, in the UK and we've kind of reached out a little bit to some of our friends in France but I think your point is is well taken Um, we need to bring uh progressives people who believe in democracy believes in in the rights of the working people who are very worried look I gotta tell you uh and I'm working on a book which will deal with this a little bit uh you know oligarchy is an issue Ben that cannot be ignored. not in the United States not around the world uh, you know, in this country, you got three people who have more wealth than the bottom half of America. You got three Wall Street firms that have 20, control twenty trillion dollars in assets. These are not just American companies; these are global BlackRock, etc. Yeah, huge global enterprises that have a huge impact all over the world. And these guys are getting richer. Ordinary people are struggling. And you know, these are issues that together uh, we have got to begin addressing.
2: Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, and look, I, I, uh, I encourage everybody to follow the Brazilian election, obviously, and, and to, to follow your resolution. Uh, frankly, if any of our listeners want to get on the horn and urge their uh, their senators to, 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 to join this resolution, we, we'd encourage them to do so. Appreciate you coming on. Anytime you want to come on, talk about these issues or spotlight some of these issues, uh, I'm sure back. it'd Sorry. be uh, well-received. Yeah. yeah, I'll call you back.
3: Well, there you go Never there you go no. Right. Uh, no I was just saying <laughs>
2: anytime you want to come back uh you know thanks for joining and uh, I I do yeah look
3: you know here's as I mentioned the earlier before we went on the air and I want to say this to the viewers uh you know from a political perspective foreign foreign policy is not a sexy issue yeah that's true people are worrying about the price of gas the price of housing the wages they earn all of which is natural these are the day-to-day realities that people have to deal with. What happens in Brazil is not exactly something that people are talking about every day. But you know, and I know that these issues are of enormous consequence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I would hope, and I want to thank you for what you're doing, because there aren't a lot of people out there talking about foreign policy in a language that people can understand. So we've all got to do better. Uh and I think uh we have got to reach out to our friends all over the world, and yeah. there are many. Who are fighting for democracy you know i just today you look at the papers and uh, you know i am impressed by these young people in russia yeah standing up right now out on the streets you know in putin's authoritarian society to go out on the streets and get arrested that is an act of great courage do you agree yeah no absolutely um uh you know and, and these are
2: people taking on more risks than us and you know the putins of the world and the trumps of the world actually understand why this matters, even though uh, you know they, Trump may not understand the issues, they understand that, that this is connected. There are movements uh, taking place uh, on both sides of these issues. I would say there are more uh, of us, people who believe in small-D democracy, than those who would uh, keep us down. As you mentioned, kleptocracy and oligarchy invest a lot in suppressing those movements, um, which is why I think That's it's hard. so important to connect the conversation that you've really spearheaded in this country about equality and justice, that's a global concern, right? And, and it is it's, a it's great that we're able to have conversations like this to draw that together. Well, let's continue this
3: discussion at another time. And thanks again for the work you're doing, Ben. Absolutely. Thanks, Senator. Okay. Take care. Thanks
1: again to Senator Sanders for joining the show. That guy, uh, Ben, did he take a phone call during it?
2: What happened there? He did, but it's like very, I just loved it. I, it was so on brand, like, because uh, he was able to, like, take a phone call and then just come back in kind of mid-thought and absolutely crush, you know? I love it. Um, I just say I always, like, end up in conversations with Bernie feeling, like, like a little more, like, energized and hopeful. Me too. Like, hope, hopeful. like there, there's a can-do to it, like, and at a time when you got, like, protesters and places as different as Russia and Iran, it, like, you tell yourself, like, Maybe we're going to get through this, you know, but, but yeah, yeah. You know, Bernie, Bernie has calls to take. He's got important people. He's a busy man. Yeah. He's a busy man. Maybe it was the CIA calling to book him on the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm yeah. guessing, I'm guessing not. He's like, oh, we'll cut your funding for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, man. Well, safe travels. Uh, thanks for doing this at like four in the morning or whatever it is over there. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Saul Rubin is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes and videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.